there is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. Gospel according to John. Now, earlier today, we were in John chapter 10, and I want to return to that same general section of the Bible, but I want you to come with me to John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. And before you get too nervous and say, heaven help us, he's getting ready to preach both chapters, let me tell you that I want you to see how all of this flows and grows together, but I'm going to zero in on one thing. Remember, in John chapter number 10, there was this great dispute great division between those that believed and those that did not believe, those that belong to Christ, those that do not belong to Christ. And when you come to the chapters that follow, that repetition is found, woven throughout the fabric of the gospel record again and again, two great groups of people. When you come to John chapter number 11, you find what I think arguably is one of the most amazing miracles Jesus ever performed when he stood in a cemetery and raised a dead man. Uh, you know, honestly, all these people want to talk about having a healing ministry. When they start raising dead people, I'll believe them, you know. Uh, Jesus didn't have a healing ministry. He had a revealing ministry. He didn't have a dead-raising ministry. He had a revealing ministry. I'll tell you how I know that. Could Jesus have healed everyone, yes or no? Yes, he could have. Did he heal everyone? Could Jesus have raised everybody in the cemetery? Did he raise everybody in the cemetery? Well, there's a reason for that, because Jesus didn't come to put on a good sideshow. Jesus came to reveal God to man. See, even his miracles had a message. So when he raised this man from the dead, he wasn't just trying to prove he could do it. I am the resurrection and the life. No, he was trying to preach a great message to these people, and some of them got it. And some of them didn't. Remember John chapter 1? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Look at John chapter 11, verse number 45. The Bible says, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. I want to stop right there and say, Praise God, many believed on him. And then look at the first two words of verse 46. But some. I've marked in my Bible in verse 45 the little word many and the little word believed. Many believed, thank God. And then I've marked these two words in verse 46, but some. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Can you imagine people so hard-hearted they couldn't even rejoice in the raising of a dead man? I mean, Jesus just broke up a funeral and the mourning going on for a dead man and these people were so hard-hearted, they didn't even rejoice when a dead man came out of the grave. Instead, they go to the religious leaders and say, you're not going to believe what this man did. Can you imagine? And yet it reveals the division that actually was already there in their hearts. They just didn't believe. 
And then you come to John chapter 12. And this is really what I want to draw your attention to because we, we give a lot of attention to the resurrection account, this raising of Lazarus in John 11, but would you notice tonight the rest of the story? Look at John 12, verse 1. Then, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Now, could I just pause a moment and point out to you that the chapter divisions in our Bible are not inspired. I'm grateful we have them. If we didn't have them, we'd all still be looking for John chapter 12, verse number 1 right now. So they're a great aid to Bible study, but they've only come into existence in the last few hundred years. They weren't given when Scripture was given. John didn't put it in chapter and verse divisions. And so I say that because, really, you've got to read all the way through John chapter number 11 and then read right on through the chapter division that's there in John chapter number 12 to get the rest of the story. Anybody in this room remember the old radio commentator Paul Harvey? Now, we're telling our age. How many of you know who Paul Harvey is? How many of you have no idea who I'm talking about? All right? I feel sorry for you people. I really do. I grew up as a boy listening to Paul Harvey on the radio. My dad liked Paul Harvey. And I, I tell you, if you can find some of, some of Paul Harvey's stuff online and listen to it, you'll enjoy it. In fact, one of the best things I ever heard was something Paul Harvey did called, If I Were the Devil. How many of you ever heard that before? Oh, it's powerful. He said, If I Were the Devil. You ought to listen to it. It sounds exactly like what the devil's doing right now. Paul Harvey had a way of telling a story like nobody could quite tell a story. And it would always build to a certain dramatic moment. And then there was that pause. He would say, and now for, what was it, please? The rest of the story. Well, I want to show you the rest of the story tonight. You see, Lazarus didn't end in John chapter number 11. And God's purpose with Lazarus's life and raising from the dead was not finished in John chapter number 11. Watch this, please. Lazarus shows up in John chapter number 12 for a very important reason. May I remind us all tonight that God didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something. God didn't just save you to keep you out of hell someday. He saved you to accomplish something in your life today. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, that doesn't mean that your life is perfect. Lazarus was still a sinner, not a perfect man. And Lazarus would die again. That's right. He would die yet again. Can you imagine going through that two times? And uh, he didn't have a perfect circumstance. I mean, my soul, he lived with two sisters. How rough can that be, you know? So uh, nobody has a perfect circumstance. But Lazarus was a testimony of the grace of Almighty God. And that's why when you come to John chapter number 12, God emphasizes Lazarus. Notice in verse number 1, Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Look at verse number 2. Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Come to verse number 9. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see who, church? Hmm. That they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10. But the chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Hold up just a minute. You mean they want to kill the guy Jesus just raised from the dead? That's exactly right. Why would they want to kill a man that had just been resurrected? I'm going to show you that in just a moment. But it sounds to me like in John 12, there is a Holy Spirit-inspired emphasis on the life of Lazarus. 
See, most of the time when we come to John chapter number 12, we give a lot of attention to Mary and Martha. And by the way, their roles are very important. We're, we're sitting with them tonight. That's where we are. Everybody pull up a chair. We're sitting with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We've come to supper. Do you all say dinner or supper up here? How many of you say dinner? How many of you say supper? I'm with you supper people, all right? So they came to supper. By the way, look at it, John chapter number 12 and verse number 2. There they made him a what? All right, so the Lord just settled that argument for us, all right? It's supper. So we haven't just come to supper. We've come to family supper. How many of you know family supper times are great times, especially when Jesus shows up at the table? So Jesus has come, started to say to dinner, excuse me, to supper, and uh, Lazarus is there, and Mary is there, and Martha is there. And by the way, they all have their roles. They're all distinct. They're all different. They all have their roles. When you read and study the passage, what is Martha doing? She's laboring. She's laboring. She's serving. She's working. And, and, and let me just say this. Before you get too critical of her, let me point out that Jesus never scolded her for serving. That, in fact, it's my conviction, Mary served as well. Mary had just learned it wasn't just to stop with the service. He had to have time to sit at Jesus' feet as well. But, look, we, we could use some more Marthas in the Lord's work today who are willing to roll up the sleeves, get their hands dirty, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. What was Jesus' great prayer request? Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth what? Spectators into his harvest? God deliver us from spectator Christianity, that he would send forth what? Laborers into his harvest. I didn't plan to say this tonight, but I'm going to tell you, it's time for all of God's children to get off the bench and get in the game. Jesus is getting ready to come. Whatever we're going to do for the Lord, we're going to have to do very quickly. And I'll tell you, this is not a time to sit on a church pew and listen to the pastor preach sermons. This is a time to find your place in the wonderful work of the Lord. So you got Martha. What's she doing? She's laboring. And then you have Mary. What's Mary doing? Mary's doing what she did every time we see her. She's at the feet of Jesus. You study Mary's life. This Mary, every time she is in the gospel records, she's at the feet of Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? Every time. Uh, in these occasions, when things are going good, she's at Jesus' feet, washing his feet and anointing him. When Lazarus dies, what does she do? She runs straight to Jesus, and she falls down, guess where? At his feet. That's exactly right. Every time she shows up in the gospel records, she's at the feet of Jesus. May I just say, that'd be a pretty good place for all of us to live near, near the nail pierced feet of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, you've got an emphasis on Martha laboring and Mary loving. Somebody says, well, what about Lazarus? Poor old Lazarus. Matter of fact, let me just ask a question. All right, let's play a little Bible trivia here for a moment. What recorded words of Lazarus do you find in the gospel records? And the answer is none. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and best I can tell, there are no actual recorded words of Jesus or of Lazarus in the account of the earthly ministry of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't speak. I believe he did speak. And maybe it meant his sisters were doing too much talking for him to get a word in edgewise. I don't know what it means. But I'm going to tell you what I really think it was. You ready for this? The emphasis in Lazarus was not on what he said, it was rather on his life. 
And when you look at John chapter 12, you got Martha busy bee, Martha laboring, you got Mary loving and anointing the Lord and just enjoying being with him. And somebody said, Well, what do you have Lazarus doing? You ready? You have him living. And that was enough. Because in the previous chapter, he was dead. So the very fact that this man is alive is a testimony to the fact that Christ is doing something in his life. The rest of the story in John chapter 12 is this, that Christ raised Lazarus from the dead so that Lazarus would be a picture of the power of Christ that God can do in the life of any of us who are dead in trespasses and sins. Let me show you two or three truths tonight. Would you write them down, please? In your Bible, interesting, at least four or five references to Lazarus right here in John chapter 12. Number one, God gives us first the picture of a changed life. That's what it is. It's the picture of a changed life. Look at verse number one, first mention of Lazarus in John 12. Lazarus was which had been dead. Don't you love the past tense? <laughs> Look, I love this. He's not dead now, but he had been dead. Everybody hold your place here just a second. Turn over a few pages to Ephesians chapter number 2 with me, would you please? And what the Apostle Paul wrote about not Lazarus, but about me and about you and about all of the Lord's children. And look at Ephesians 2 and verse number 1. And you have he quickened, literally breathed life into, made alive, resurrected. You have he quickened who, read the next two words with me, church, were dead. Say that again, were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. You see the emphasis here on the past tense? Come down to verse number 4. But God, isn't it great when God butts in? But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we, what's the next two words, church? were dead. Would you mark in verse 1, were dead, and in verse 5, were dead, and connect the two in your Bible? There was a time that you were not. There was a moment before you were conceived that you did not exist. And there was a moment when you were born. Look, please. You were made alive. There was a time that you were not in the family of God. You, you were not a child of God. This is not some generic, vague kind of thing. This is a definite thing. There was a time that you were a sinner, you were lost, you were away from God, you, you were perishing. And look, please, there came that glorious moment of new birth where you passed from death unto life. You were translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. You were made alive in Jesus Christ. Look, that's what happened not not just a Lazarus, praise God. No, no, that was just a picture. That's what happened to every one of us who have come to know Christ as our personal Savior. For me, that happened 40 years ago. 40 years ago, I started asking questions. I was in a school, started asking questions of a kind Christian woman, a spirit-filled woman. It wasn't a minister that led me to the Lord. It was a teacher, a single lady at the time. And she sat me down, pastor, in the back of a room, and she opened a Bible like the one I'm preaching from tonight, and she just gave me the simple gospel message and told me that God loved me and Christ died for me and Jesus was raised from the dead and he'd save me if I would receive him. And on that day, I came as a child and Jesus received me as one of his children. A few weeks ago, I was preaching in a gospel crusade, and the last night I looked up and uh, the meeting was done. I was coming off the platform, and through that mass of humanity, through that crowd, there was a woman making her way down the aisle, and I looked up, and it was the woman that led me to Jesus 40 years ago. 
And I said to her, I, I'm just so grateful to God for you. I'm so grateful you told me about Jesus. How many of you remember the day that Jesus saved you? Would you raise your hand? Now, you may not remember all of the details. You may not remember everything about it. You may not remember the exact date that it happened. But, my friend, you better know that there was a time that you were dead in trespasses and sins and you came alive a new person in Jesus Christ. When we baptize people, and by the way, if you've been saved and you've not followed Jesus in believer's baptism since you were saved, you need to do that. It doesn't make you a Christian. No, no. It just lets everybody else know you are a Christian. But when we baptize, what do we say? We say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It is an outward sign of the inward change. It is its own picture of what Jesus Christ did for you, just like what Jesus did for Lazarus. I'll go back to our story in John chapter 12 because, oh, I love this. He not only tells us that he had been dead, then he tells us he was raised from the dead. So you see his past, and then you see his present circumstance. His past is he was a dead man. His present circumstance is he's a live man. May I tell you, 40 years ago, I was a dead man. You would have looked at me and said, oh, no, you're very alive. You're healthy. No, I was a walking dead man. That's what every sinner is apart from God. He's a walking dead man. But there comes that moment when Jesus speaks life into a believer that he passes from death to life. Oh, praise it be to the name of our God. As surely as Jesus stood in that cemetery and said, Lazarus, come forth, there was a day that Jesus called me by name. Aren't you glad he knows your name? When he speaks your name, you come out of that death into his marvelous life. Oh, but don't miss this. Look at verse number 2. He not only had been dead, and he's not only raised from the dead. Look at the end of verse 2. This is, not, this is not just incidental information. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Don't miss this, please. Lazarus didn't just live. He was completely healthy. Here's a picture, not of a man limping his way through life, just kind of eking out some existence. Look, he feels so good now, he can come to supper time. I'd say that's feeling pretty good, wouldn't you? How many of you know when people get really sick, they don't want to eat? How many of you know when you start feeling better, the first thing you want to do is what? Yeah, we got to get some strength. we got to get some sustenance. And then, interesting, Jesus raises this man from the dead. And the next time you see him, he's sitting at supper time with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the whole salvation that Jesus brings, the completeness that only Christ can bring into a man's life. Look, he doesn't just give you a little bit of salvation. Oh, my friend, he gives you a full salvation. He saves to the uttermost. He doesn't give you enough to endure. He gives you enough to enjoy. He, look, where sin abounds, praise God grace does much more abound and for every wicked ugly thing in us christ is greater bless the name of the lord jesus christ what do we have here we have a beautiful picture of a changed life by the way just a little footnote to this they're sitting at the table together is that right in scripture the table is always a picture of fellowship May I tell you what Jesus saved you for? He didn't just save you to have a relationship. He saved you to have fellowship. My wife and I got married on Friday the 13th. It was the luckiest Friday the 13th in my life, let me tell you. I married a Yankee girl. I married a girl from Michigan. Y'all pray for me, would you please? And I remember when the back door opened and she came down the aisle and I remember standing there in that, in that altar and I remember us saying our vows and saying our I do's. And at that moment, we entered into a relationship but now after nearly 25 years of marriage can I tell you what I've discovered I've discovered that you can have a relationship but you got to work at the fellowship 
You see, I think sometimes some of us who've been saved a little while, we've shifted into neutral. We're just coasting into glory. We're glad we're not going to hell. But I want you to know, Jesus raised you from the dead for much more than that. He'd like to sit down at the table with you. We quote this verse to lost people, but it wasn't written to lost people. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will what? Sup with him and he with me. That sounds like fellowship. Sup's the old English word for supper time. The Lord rings the dinner bell. That's pretty good, isn't it? And the Lord says, you know, I'd like to come in. Be honest. How many of you know Jesus lives in your house? Watch this now. The day you got saved, he moved into your house. This is the temple of the Holy Ghost. He moved in your house. He didn't rent. He buys. He doesn't move in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. No, no, no. He's, he's, he's not moving around from time to time. When he moves in, he moves in to stay. He takes up eternal residence in your soul. And when he moves in, he brings all of his own furniture with him. But may I say to you, it is possible to have Jesus in your house and not at the table. And there's a whole lot of Christians who know they're saved. And I may be preaching to some of them tonight, but you're not in fellowship with God. Oh, you've got a relationship with God. And if you're really pressed on it, you say, well, yeah, I'm going to heaven someday. I want to just tell you, Jesus didn't just save you for heaven someday. He saved you for here today. God wants fellowship with you at this moment. Do you want fellowship with him? That verse, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door, door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him. Praise God for that. But it gets better than that. He says, and I will sup with him. And then he turns it around and says, he will sup with me. You ever wonder why I said it both ways? That's a fascinating verse. Years ago, I was reading and studying on that verse. I never paid any attention to it. But the Lord doesn't say anything by accident. He said, I'll sup with you. And then he says, you will sup with me. Doesn't it make sense? It'd be a whole lot simpler to just say, we'll have supper with each other. But he doesn't. There's a divine order. Do you believe God's a God of order? He says, I will sup with you. And then he says, you will sup with me. Watch this. Jesus comes into the life. He pulls up to the table of fellowship in your life. And we begin to say to him, oh, Lord, I got so many things in my life that aren't what they ought to be. And Jesus says, just tell me about them. Just confess that to me. And, and yes, I'll take that confession. I'll take a scoop of that confession. And we say, oh, Lord, you've been so good to me. I just want to thank you and praise you and give you glory. And the Lord says, I inhabit the praises of my people. I'll take a double heaping of that. Give me a whole lot of that thanks and praise. And we begin to offer to him the things that we have in our souls, in our minds, in our lives. We just lay them out on the table. We say, Jesus, you can have all of this. Oh, but I love this. There comes a moment at supper time when Jesus gets up from the table and puts the apron on. Look, please. In the first, he's the guest, but in the second, he's the host. Let me just tell you, nobody spreads a table like Jesus spreads a table. And there comes a glorious moment in fellowship with God when it's not just you talking to God. Hallelujah. God begins speaking deeply to you when it's not just you offering things to the Lord it is you beginning to live on the divine resources what is it it is the very reason for which God saved your black-hearted hell-deserving soul because he wants fellowship with you it is a picture of new life in Jesus Christ Look again John 12 there's not only a picture of a changed life but secondly there's the power of a changed life a changed life's a powerful thing. Look down at verse 9 and verse 10 where we find our next reference to him. The Bible says that these Jews, they, they knew Jesus was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also whom he raised from the dead. And notice the contrast in verse 9. 
You've got a group of people that want to see Lazarus. And in verse 10, but the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. You've got a group of people who want to put Lazarus to death. Sound vaguely familiar to what we studied earlier today? Two great groups of people. There's always this great contrast in Scripture. By the way, the stark contrast is going to be seen in eternity between heaven and hell, between eternal separation from God and eternal union with God. But it's revealed right here in this portion of Scripture. This is what has captured my attention this week. Did it ever dawn on you that the same truth and the same power that attracts some people repels others? It's amazing to me. So I stand up, I preach the gospel, and there's somebody in the congregation that says, that's what I need. I just need Jesus. And there's somebody else in the congregation that said, I don't want any of that. That's not for me. How's that possible? How's it possible that the same truth is given and people hear the same powerful gospel message and yet some are attracted by it and some are repelled by it? I quoted the scripture earlier, but let me just show you. Go back in Matthew for a moment, would you please? Go to the first gospel record of Matthew chapter number 10. Let me show you something interesting. Jesus is speaking. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 34. I alluded to this this morning. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. You know, sometimes we don't think like we ought to think. His thoughts are higher than ours, aren't they? Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. Now hold up just a second. I thought when Jesus was born, they said, Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Is that right? And you're getting ready to hear a whole lot about that for the next month. And yet Jesus says plainly right here, I came not to send peace on earth. What he's talking about in context is this. I didn't come to, to get rid of Rome and taxation and get Caesar off your back and make your life a little more comfortable. That's not why I came. I sent, came to bring a sword. Well, what's the sword for? A sword is a means of division, to cut in two. So keep reading. I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Somebody said, well, that doesn't sound like what God wants. I thought God wanted families to get along and, and have peace and love one another. Oh, he does. What he's talking about here is spiritually speaking, look please, in the same household you can have one man who's a believer and you can have a wife who's an unbeliever. You can have a wife who's a believer and a man that's an unbeliever. You can have parents who love Jesus and children that don't love Jesus. And I'm going to tell you why that is. You ready? Because everybody has to have their own life changed by the power of Jesus Christ. Nobody can do that for you but Jesus. Nobody. You may reap some of the blessings of being around a believer, but I want you to know, my friend, there is a powerful change that comes into a man's life when Christ is allowed in that nothing else can substitute for and there's no shortcut to it. It is the power of a changed life. Go back to John 12 and let me show you one more truth. Because there's not only a picture here of a changed life and the power of a changed life, but please don't miss this. There's a purpose for a changed life. Why did Jesus raise him from the dead? To stop Mary and Martha from crying? To shut the mouths of all the people who were standing there mocking him. Why did Jesus raise him from the dead? I'll tell you why. To bring him to supper so this would happen. Everybody look at verse number 11. Because. You want the cause? Here's the cause. Because that by reason of him, that's Lazarus, many of the Jews went away. Oh, thank you for this Holy Spirit. And believed on Jesus. 
I'm going to tell you why God saved you, sir. Why God saved you, ma'am. God saved you so that he would get all the glory through many others coming to know Jesus. It's not just about saying a prayer, making a decision. You know, Pastor, if all there was to it was people getting saved, then when people walk the aisle and profess their faith in Christ, we ought to pat them on the back and then hit them on the head with a baseball bat and send them immediately to glory and get it over with. You say, well, that's ridiculous, preacher. But that's the way most people think. Well, I got saved. Check that one off. Friend, that's not the end. That's the glorious new beginning. See, when God saves you, it is for a purpose. And the great purpose, look at it, please, is not just that you believe on Christ, but that many more would believe on Jesus Christ. Lazarus, this is not so you can draw people to yourself. This is so you can point them all to Jesus. May I tell you that God saves us, not so we will get any credit, but so he will get all the glory. And it is the only thing in the Bible God says he won't share. His glory. Anybody else here besides me glad our God shares? He shares air. Everybody take a breath. Praise God for that. He shares food. How many of you have eaten in the last 24 hours? How many of you ate way too much this past week? Be honest, you're in church, all right? Now, God shares his food. God shared his sunshine today. Wasn't it lovely? God shared a little wind to go with the sunshine. Wasn't that nice? God shared the birds singing. God shares. God shares not just the material. God shares the spiritual. He shares grace and mercy and wisdom. Oh, he shares his love. Blessed be the name of our great sharing God. But there's one thing in Scripture God says he won't share. He said, I will not share my glory with any other. And I say again, the only reason God saved any of us and has let us live to this moment, I'm going to tell you why you're living right now. Why somebody else was not permitted to come to this moment, but yet for some reason God let you live to this moment. I'm going to tell you why you're alive. You're alive, number one, so you can believe on Christ, and number two, so through you others will see Christ in you and many more will believe on Him. And this is what just smote my soul this week. Does my life do that? How about yours? Is there enough of God in me to draw sinners to Jesus? Is there enough of a changed life in me, a billboard for the grace of God? And you, and you say, well, you're a preacher. Yeah, but I'm not talking about being a preacher. I'm talking about being a Christian. Did you know it's easier to preach sermons than it is to live the Christian life? That's right. And it's easier to lecture hundreds of people than it is to strike up a conversation with one lost sinner. Ironic, isn't it? I'm not talking about me as a minister. I'm talking about me as a Christian. Is there enough of God and the grace of God and the power of God and the joy of the Lord and the fellowship of Christ at work in my life that others would see that and be attracted to the Christ in me? Is there enough of that to make Satan mad? Is there enough of that to get God glory? Is there enough of that to make a difference for eternity in your life, my friend? Because that is the purpose of a changed life. And I believe something in my soul. I believe that some of us are missing our purpose. Oh, we're working our jobs and paying our bills and getting through week after week and raising our kids and all that kind of thing. And there's seasons of life. My wife and I are getting ready to marry off our oldest child. Would you pray for us, please? I'm going to tell you how you can pray. I want you to help me pray for the rapture of the church before January the 8th. Would you help me pray that way? 
I'm praying against her fiancé right now. That's what I'm doing. Oh, he's a great young man. But I, I'm thinking about my life. Is that all I'm doing? Biding time, checking days, uh, going through events? That's all there is to this? Or is there a greater purpose, a higher purpose, a, a more eternal purpose? And could the purpose not be really so much about me as about reflecting all glory to God and drawing others to Christ so that many more could believe on the Lord Jesus? I want you to know that in the darkness of this world right now, what people need to meet and see, they need to meet some real Christians. I'm talking about some people who've had their lives changed by the grace of God who aren't ashamed of it. And I wonder, are you one of those people? Funny, isn't it? People say, well, I just don't know what to say, preacher. And you know, that's just not really my personality. And I'm not much of a public speaker. Hmm. Well, God used Lazarus as not a single recorded word for him. Watch this, please. No recorded words, but his life spoke. And somehow, somehow through Lazarus, there was a whole bunch of Jews that said, I'll tell you one thing, whoever changed Lazarus like that, we'd like to get to know him. You going to heaven? I said, are you going to heaven? Who are you going to take with you? Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? Who, who at the judgment seat will point at you and say, that man brought me to Jesus? That man. Who at the nail-pierced feet of the lovely Son of God will point at you and say, that lady, she prayed me to Christ. That family, they, they just kind of adopted us on our street and wouldn't leave us alone and stayed after us till we came to know Jesus. Who? Who? Because, my friend, that's the rest of your story. And it's why God has left every one of us here. We've had a strange couple years. Can we all agree on that? Can I get a witness? But let me ask you something. I hear people saying, well, I'll tell you, I just can't wait for 2022. I'd be real careful about that. People were saying that about 2021 as well. But let me ask you something. What if you knew you had one month left before you met Jesus? On New Year's Eve, God lets me live and Jesus tears is coming. I'll be speaking in Atlanta, Georgia at a single adult conference. And that's my plan. That's my plan that night. But that may not be God's plan that night. What if you knew, what if I knew that on the 31st day of December, 2021, at midnight, the dawn of a new year, what if you knew the trumpet was going to sound? I mean, you knew it. It was on the calendar. You got a message from God. He said, hold that date. Hold that date. I'll be there that night, midnight. What would you do for the next month? What would we change? What would the priorities look like? Somebody said, yeah, but preacher, we don't know that. No, you're right. Could be midnight tonight. I want to say to you, whatever urgency you would live with, if you knew that, is the urgency we all ought to be living with right now. Because any moment, <laughs> any moment, the same Jesus that strolled through Bethany and came to supper, he's getting ready to come back. He's taking us to a supper. That's going to be one kind of supper, let me tell you. And on that day, the only thing that's going to matter is did we fulfill the purpose for which Jesus saved us?
If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.